0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Christmas ghost story is a very old tradition. In this podcast, folklorist and historian Francis Young gives a short lecture, which he delivered online for the Church's Conservation Trust, exploring where the idea of the ghost story originates. And what it tells us about approaches to the festive period, from the early medieval era through to the works of Charles Dickens and the great ghost story writer M.R. James.
1: So, the title of this talk is Christmas Ghosts. And I think that anyone with even a passing interest in the literary form of the ghost story will know that Montague Rhodes James, M.R. James, widely acknowledged as the greatest master of the ghost story who's ever lived, used to read a ghost story yearly at Christmas time at King's College, Cambridge, to a select gathering of students and fellows. James later wrote up finished versions of those stories for his volumes of collected ghost stories. But I think it's important to remember that by the late 19th century, when James began these readings, the Christmas ghost story was already something of a literary cliché. Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, which appeared in 1843, was, depending on your view, either the summit of this tradition or a complete subversion of it. Because A Christmas Carol, although there's plenty of ghosts in it, is clearly not really about the ghosts themselves. It's a morality tale in which those ghosts play a number of functions. Oddly, in spite of the popularity of A Christmas Carol and its multiple TV and film adaptations though, many people today are still unaware that Christmas was once associated more than any other season with the telling of ghost stories. There's a widespread belief that Halloween is actually the best season for telling ghost stories, But really, before the 20th century, we rarely come across the idea that ghost stories are associated with Halloween. It's very much Christmas, traditionally, that is the spookiest time of year. Now, when I say Christmas, I don't, of course, mean Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but Christmas in its traditional sense. The season of Christmas, running from sundown, on the evening of the 24th of December through to Twelfth Night, Twelfth Night being the 5th of January, the evening preceding the Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January. This was the period when, in the Middle Ages and after, festivities continued for 12 days around the huge smouldering Yule log, which was supposed to be large enough to smoke and burn throughout the whole season. The medieval Christmas was the ultimate stand of light against dark, of warmth against cold and darkness in the depths of Europe's little ice age. Small wonder then that this strange time of year gave rise to cathartic tales of the dark, death, and the macabre. Because the desire to be made pleasantly uncomfortable as M.R. James put it, by tales of supernatural horrors when you yourself are in perfect safety, is as old, perhaps, as human storytelling itself. We can discern the origins of this strange combination of comfort and disquiet in old English literature. In a famous story recorded by Bede, The 7th century missionary, St. Paulinus, converted King Edwin of Northumbria to Christianity in this way. Paulinus asked Edwin to imagine human life like a sparrow flying into the King's Hall in midwinter. For a brief moment, the sparrow enjoys the light and warmth of the festivities before flying again into the freezing dark so this life of man appears for a little while. But of what is to follow or what went before, we know nothing at all. If, therefore, this new doctrine tells us something more certain, it seems justly to deserve to be followed, as the missionary declared. In the same way, the action of much of the old English poem Beowulf takes place in winter when the warriors are hunkered down in the hall of Heorot, but at the mercy of the monster Grendel. Long was the season, 12 winters time, torture suffered the friend of the Shieldings, every affliction, long against Hrothgar, Grendel struggled, his grudges he cherished, murderous malice, many a winter, strife unremitting. Now Grendel isn't, of course, a ghost. Exactly what he is is not altogether clear. But he is an otherworldly visitant, And the message of old English literature seems to be that the macabre forces of existential dread mass against the comfort of the hall in midwinter. This resonates with the Christmas message that we find in the gospel reading for Christmas night, John chapter one. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. But human nature is such that the darkness will always fascinate us as much as the light. Well, some have linked the appearance of ghosts on Christmas Eve to the holiness of the day to follow. On this interpretation, Christmas Eve, like the Eve of All Hallows, is a last chance for the forces of dark to come out and play before being driven away by the light. But I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced by this. In Christian tradition, the beginning of Christmas is sundown on Christmas Eve, not Christmas Day. And Christmas has long been associated with strange upheavals in nature. Most famously, animals are supposed to gain the power of speech at midnight on Christmas Eve, on the basis that the entirety of nature is transformed and in wonder at the birth of Christ, as the Gaudete carol has it, Deus homo factus natura mirante, God is made man with all nature marvelling at it. But this doesn't seem to be enough to explain why the dead should return at Christmas time. On a basic level, we all know that grief for our loved ones is heightened at Christmas time, simply because it's that time of year when families are reunited. Perhaps this has always been true of midwinter festivities. The dead are especially present because we miss their participation in our conviviality. In some countries, this is taken very literally. In Lithuania, whose folklore I also study, there's a custom that places are laid for deceased members of the family at the Christmas Eve meal, which in Lithuania is the major meal of the Christmas season, and the souls of the dead dine with the living. Similarly, in ancient Rome, People assumed the identities of their ancestors on the calends of January, that's the 1st of January, the day sacred to the god Janus, who looks both back and forward. And people took the masks, the wax masks of the ancestors, off the walls of Roman houses and wore them in the festivities. The 1st of January was the beginning of the administrative new year in ancient Rome, and the consuls took their offices although it should be noted that the first of January has only been the beginning of the year in England since 1752. Prior to that, the beginning of the year was the 25th of March. So it's rather a new thing in this country. The turning of the year is an immense outpouring of supernatural energy. A time for the anointing of kings, for new beginnings, for encounters, with visitants from the other world, like the mysterious green knight encountered at Christmas, or Heliquim leading the souls of the dead on a wild ride through the night sky, which the terrified priest Walkalin saw on New Year's Eve in 1091. It's the presence of the winter solstice, the turning of the year from darkness to light, that is surely at the root of the association between Christmas and the dead. We know that the winter solstice was one of the most significant times of the year for the Neolithic and Bronze Age builders of many megalithic monuments. Why that was is something we can only speculate about. But in the Middle Ages, many people believed that there was a chance for the souls of the dead to return from purgatory at the turning of the year in order to ask for prayers in the coming year. The old idea that a new year began at the winter solstice is hinted at in the medieval English poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where Gawain must go in search of the Green Knight a year and a half after beheading the mysterious giant at the Christmas feast at King Arthur's court. Besides Dickens's A Christmas Carol, the most famous Christmas ghost story is surely one that never gets told—the sad tale of sprites and goblins, started but left unfinished by the boy Mamillius in Shakespeare's *A Winter's Tale*. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. In his short story of the same title, M.R. James sought to complete Mamillius's story, but in those eight words. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. We have the essence of the medieval and early modern midwinter ghost story. The setting is the churchyard, not because of the modern idea that churchyards are spooky, but because the churchyard is the resting place of the dead. Mermilius's story is not first and foremost a frightening one, but as the boy says, a sad one. For the souls of the living returned at the turning of the year to demand the mercy of the living through the offering of prayers and masses. They didn't return just to scare people. The Christmas ghost story cathartically exercises our fear of the spirits of the outer darkness, like Grendel. But it's also, I would suggest, a mechanism for managing our collective grief at the loss of the departed, and a reminder to offer them their due. In this context, the morally insistent ghosts of A Christmas Carol are perhaps not as untraditional as they might first appear. If the tradition of telling Christmas ghost stories is as old as time itself, the tradition of publishing them is rather more recent dating back to a story published by Washington Irving in 1820. It was Charles Dickens, however, who made the printed Christmas ghost story a tradition in his periodical Household Words. The popularity of ghost stories at Christmas time with publishers may have had something to do with their standalone character at a time when most periodicals would publish lengthy novels in serial form. Christmas editions of periodicals were marketed as souvenir editions, so ghost stories were perfect. The mass appeal of A Christmas Carol made the literary ghost story part of the canon of the Victorian Christmas that Dickens strove so hard to create, to the point of turning the Christmas ghost into a moralizing cliché. It was M. R. James who really breathed New life, or perhaps one should say new death, into the Christmas ghost story in the 20th century, introducing a genuine terror that would be transferred to TV screens in 1971 with the launch of the BBC's Ghost Story for Christmas. The films in this occasional series were generally, though not always, based on James's ghost stories. And the series was revived in 2005 and continues down to this day. Ghostly content at Christmas seems to be more powerful now than ever. The Christmas ghost story is far more than just a spooky bolt-on to the festive season, an antidote to tinsel and relentless good cheer. It's more than just a comfortable scare. The Christmas ghost story arises from the deepest roots of the midwinter season as a time of turning, of transformation, and new beginnings. The winter solstice is a time of encounter with the dead when we are reminded of their presence alongside us at our revels. The tradition of the literary ghost story continues in what's perhaps a culturally sanitized form, an age-old and complex negotiation between light and dark, between death and life, and becomes acute as the dark encroaches and daylight dwindles. Before I finish, I just wanted to mention a couple of books that you might be interested in. And I'm afraid I'm going to start very um, uh, uh, immodestly by talking about a book that I myself am responsible for. Uh, I am, in fact, myself a writer of ghost stories. So if you'd ever be interested in reading some of my ghost stories, my first ghost story collection was recently published and is called Yellow Glass and Other Ghost Stories. And as you might have guessed, they are very much ghost stories in the tradition of M.R. James. The other book that I'd really like to highlight is nothing to do with me, but it's a book that I feel very strongly needs to get published. And this is called Casting the Runes, The Letters of M.R. James. It's going to be a complete edition of The Letters of M.R. James that have remained unpublished until now by Jane Manley Piddock. And it's uh, currently uh, not quite funded. It requires a bit more funding. And I would really like, p- for purely selfish reasons, because I want to read this book, I would very much like to see it published, but I believe I'm not the only one who'd be interested in it. So perhaps that would be something to think about as something to contribute to in this festive season.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: You've got some pretty, yeah, some pretty unpleasant stories of revenants in particular in medieval ghost narratives these sort of animated corpses that, uh, that come back to life, very different from the drifting, gauzy ghost of Victorian imagination. This episode
2: is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by
1: the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
0: Following the talk, Francis answered a few questions from our content director, Dave Musgrove.
3: So the, f- the first thing was you talked about M.R. James, the, uh, the the famous medievalist and ghost writer, and um, if I understood correctly, um, you were in part tracing the sort of the origins of the Christmas ghost story back to the medieval midwinter and, and maybe a little bit earlier into into the early medieval period. So I guess it's no surprise that that sort of concept should have been. Reinvigorated a bit by a medievalist, by M. R. James, does is that is that a fair assessment of of what's happening? And if so, um, was James sort of inspired and driven by his his medieval um, studies?
1: Yes, he absolutely was. And in fact, M. R. James was responsible for putting together a collection of medieval ghost stories. Um, he really began the study of medieval ghost narratives which um, today is is quite a popular field of study amongst medievalists. And James was really the first person that we know of who showed an interest in such things. So he was very directly inspired by medieval examples. Um, And I think there are certain commonalities as well between the way that his stories are structured and medieval ghost narratives, where you've often got a motive of vengeance that the ghost is acting on, or a motive of restitution, a writing of a wrong, but also that sense in which even when a ghost is acting in a just way to, you know, write something that's been, that's been wrong, nevertheless, the, the way in which the ghost acts goes beyond human justice. It goes beyond, you know, the, the normal revenge that we might expect from a living person, and becomes quite awful and terrible in the extent of the, the damage the ghost does. And that as well is something which we find as a, as a feature of medieval ghost stories.
3: So what, um, where, where are those ghost narratives to be found in medieval sources? What sort of um, uh, documents and sources was he drawing on there?
1: Well, we find the occasional ghost story scattered throughout the chronicles of medieval monasteries in particular, where you've got this close-knit group of men or women who are living together, who are part of a community with a history, where you've got members of that community who are are dying, you've got complex social relationships within that community. So in a way, the medieval monastery is the ideal place for a ghost story to be told, because there's always some unresolved issue within the community. And Arguably, you know, the appearance of a ghost is one way of resolving those kind of issues. So, yes, uh, we find them there. We find them in saints' lives occasionally, uh, that in fact a, a person will be troubled by a ghost and a saint might intervene to uh, to, to exorcise that ghost and banish it. So, yes, in a number of different types of literature in the Middle Ages, we certainly in the Middle Ages don't find the standalone ghost story in the way that it, it exists in the 19th century, but we do find ghost narratives scattered in other sources, really because they serve a, a purpose of showing God's providence and that you know God will make provision for souls to be released from purgatory in order to right wrongs and make sure that things are, are, are put, uh, uh, you know, put back to rights.
3: And am I right um, that uh, M.R. James particularly uh, drew inspiration from uh, stories from, uh, from and set in Byland Abbey? Is that is that um, Yes, is that that's
1: correct? right. Uh, Byland Abbey in Yorkshire, which was a Cistercian monastery. So that's got some of those stories. Um, he was also inspired by stories from chroniclers like William of Newburgh, uh, Ralph of Coggershall, um, you've got some pretty, yeah, some pretty unpleasant stories of revenants, in particular in medieval ghost narratives. These sort of animated corpses that uh, that come back to life, very different from the drifting gauzy ghost of Victorian imagination. The revenant is this you know, decayed cadaver that comes out of the grave and wanders around and put, and sometimes behaves in a completely uh, irrational way for no particular purpose. And sometimes acts in this uh, way to enact justice.
3: And what's what? What? Where are the origins of those revenants? Because they, I, I, I think, I'm right in thinking that they they appear in um, in Scandinavian uh, literature, don't they? In, in in sagas, you often get that sense of revenants coming out of barrows. The the Droger, I think it's it, it would be. Is that is that where it comes from? Is that the antecedent?
1: That's perfectly possible. We don't really know for certain where the British tradition of revenants comes from. But clearly, there's a strong Norse influence, particularly on the north of England, and that tends to be where the revenant traditions are, actually, in England. Um, But it's something that we find throughout Europe, um, most notoriously in Transylvania and Hungary, where it becomes the, the vampire tradition, but it originates as the idea of these revenants coming out of the ground. But it also ties in with medieval philosophy, because there was a belief that decomposition happened when the soul had entirely left the body. So the consequence of that belief is that there is a period between what we might consider to be death and the start of composition when there is some sense in which the soul is still lingering around and attached to the body in medieval thought. And therefore it is conceivable, it's it's perfectly possible for medieval people to imagine that during that period a corpse might come to life by some accidental process or by the soul reanimating the body. And of course, there was also the belief that people might use dark magic necromancy to deliberately reanimate a corpse and bring it back from the dead. But it might also happen by accident. So it's not something which is exclusively a magical event.
3: So, so this is really interesting. So, M. R. James was was, uh, was aware of the of this uh, this medieval tradition and this medieval understanding of ghost stories. And and I suppose so. What you're saying is, when we look at the stories of M. R. James that which were written much more recently, we can see we can get a sense of of medieval ghost stories. Um, I, what I'm wondering a bit about is um, th- it's fascinating this idea of of, uh, of James um, giving these firelight, these candlelight Christmas recitals that you mentioned in King's College. to... To his um, to his friends and colleagues, do we have is is, is there any um, has anyone ever written a description of what it was like when when he was delivering those talks?
1: Yes, there are several descriptions that were written down by people who were there at a time. At the time, some of them were boys at, at Eton, some of them were undergraduates at, at Cambridge, and obviously years later they they understood the significance of what they'd experienced and understood, you know, James's significance in his own lifetime he wasn't really renowned primarily as a writer of ghost stories he he was renowned but very much as a historian and an archaeologist and an art historian and a, a curator and do, you know in these very significant offices of state as um, the, the the provost of kings and the provost of eton so really those things during his own lifetime overshadow these little books of ghost stories that he brings out And it's only really after his death that he gains this cult following, uh, largely after the Second World War. Um, And yeah, people become very interested in his ghost stories without really having much acquaintance with the other work that he did and the antiquarian researches that he was engaged in. But James himself was, uh, yeah, he he was not exactly dismissive, but he was um, non-committal about the significance of the ghost stories. He did regard them as entertainment. And as something which, um, yeah, was was uh, uh, originating in that convivial atmosphere of the Christmas festivities at Kings or Eton, in which he would write these stories and read them. And although they're certainly polished up by the time he publishes them,
3: so his in, his inspiration there, his drive was simply to entertain and uh, and and give a, a a Christmas spirit. There wasn't there was no uh, underlying other motive.
1: Well, not that we can discern. Um, I, my, my own view on why James wrote his stories, I think that he felt unease when encountering the dead through manuscripts, through artefacts, through architecture. This is something that comes across in all his stories. And it's almost as though it was something that he couldn't, he felt that he couldn't really write about in his academic work, because academic Writing articles, books doesn't really lend itself to writing about how you feel about your research. And so the ghost stories, I, I think, gave him an outlet to express how he felt about the process—the rather lonely process sometimes of being an antiquarian, being a historian, and spending a lot of time with um, an- you know ancient belief systems that might be quite unsettling. Spending a lot of time with people who are long gone and yet when you're doing that sort of historical work you feel terribly close to those people and it does give you that rather uncanny sense that you're closer to the dead sometimes than to the living
3: and is am i right in thinking that's a sense that uh, you also have employed because you've you've been writing your own ghost stories and and you've you've got a a similar sort of motive is that right? yeah
1: well uh, this is why I say what I do about James because I feel it myself Um, that is the reason why I decided to start writing ghost stories because there is something which it's not possible to express in normal historical writing and I wanted to convey some of that uh, experience of what it's like to be a historian and, and a ghost story I think is one of the best ways of doing that
3: right finally, just one one other thing I wanted to to put by you um given where we are now with the the corona epidemic we're talking here in in december 2020 and there's been this huge um huge pandemic threat across the across the globe I'm just wondering um in the, the medieval period the early medieval period was was riven with similar sort of existential threats from viking assaults through to plagues and pestilences black death and things like that do you ever see um, when you're looking at ghost stories, um, any sense of of a tone changing or uh, an upsurge in ghost stories anything like that when there are these key moments of uh, of turmoil and upheaval in the period
1: in the Middle ages is difficult to say because we don't have a, a very large sample of medieval ghost narratives. Um, so i I don't really see much of a link between specific events like the Black Death or famine or pestilence and the appearance of of ghosts and revenants. But that's really because we don't have enough evidence when it comes to medieval ghosts. But I think certainly when you look at modern times, there was an outpouring of literature about ghosts and about the departed during and after the First World War. So when you have periods of immense loss of life, it does make people reassess their relationship with those who have died, because people may not have had the time to say goodbye and grief becomes an all-pervasive feature of society. And I think that the ghost story in those situations has been sometimes a way of people dealing with a collective social grief. So I think there is a link there um, in, in modern times. So whether our present situation will produce a particular literary movement in that regard. I think it's a bit too early to say, but ghost stories certainly continue to fascinate people.
3: One more thing, as as you're a, a scholar of ghost stories and ghost folklore, um, come Christmas Eve, is there one particular story that you would like to curl up with and uh, enjoy in a, in, a, in a ghoulish festive fashion?
1: Well, I like so many of them, but my favourite of M. R. James's ghost stories would be The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, uh, which is one of his earlier stories written in 1891, which features a, an unwary antiquarian who is very pleased with himself for decoding a clue in some stained glass that leads him to the location of treasure in a German monastery. But then he finds something very unpleasant waiting for him when he does find the treasure. And it's that sense of the exalting scholar who thinks that he's solved the puzzle, and yet, in fact, there's something more that is beyond what the scholar can truly understand that stands in the way between him and happiness and uh, that speaks to me as a historian because very often the truth in history is unattainable we just can't get to an adequate understanding of what things were really like and sometimes you can get very very excited about for solving an individual puzzle but actually, then sort of get bitten um, by the lack of sources at another point, where you realise that actually you don't have the answers, and you really don't know what's going on, and anyone's guess is as good as yours. And it, I, the the story to me it captures that sense of the roller coaster of being a historian.
3: Excellent well thank I, I'm thank you for reminding us of that one I think I, I think I've read that one he has to he has to call in a friend to come and help him out I think if I yes, if I remember right it. we'd better not better not ruin the ending but uh, but yes uh, that's uh, that, that is a good story well well thank you very much Francis for that um uh, little addendum there to uh, to ghost stories and the origins of of Christmas ghost stories um a fascinating topic and uh, obviously very timely at this time of year so thank you Francis Young and of course happy Christmas.
1: Thank you very much.
3: That was Dr. Francis Young.
0: His book of ghostly tales is called Yellow Glass and Other Ghost Stories and is published by St. German Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an archive episode on the story of Alexander Hamilton.